Hi, it's David Locke, host of Locked on NBA. Exciting show. Ben Falk has got the new site called cleaningtheglass.com. It's a great site. Super insight on articles as well as stats. He was an analytics guy in the front office of teams and has now made the subscription site available at cleaningtheglass.com. It's $75 a year. It's great. He's super. The discussion got really long, so I've broken into two bite-sized pieces for you, each about 30 minutes, a little less than 30 minutes long. The opening one we talk about is site cleaning the glass. We then talk about the value of offensive rebounding and whether there's more today than there was before. We talk about below average offensive efficiency players and how detrimental they are. And we dig in a little bit to Andrew Wiggins, Jamal Crawford and that in this episode. Episode two, we'll talk about how much individual players change when they move teammates, front office mistakes, standard deviation of performance of players, plus a defensive player that should be looked at as an MVP maybe because of his value and what makes good playoff teams. That's in part two. Part one comes up right now for you, brought to you today by SeatGeek. Use the promo code LOCK to get $20 back on your first rebate. Thanks to SeatGeek for sponsoring the Lockdown Podcast Network. Here's Ben Falk. The site is cleaning the glass. You are locked on the NBA, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Excited to have Ben Falk uh, on with us, revolutionizing a little bit of the media world, also making analytics uh, understandable, doing all sorts of incredible things. Ben, uh, give me a little bit of how cleaning the glass has been better than you, like where it's impacted people more than you thought it would. Uh, than when you started? So um, one of the things that's been really gratifying for me has been kind of seeing just, um, you know, fans' response to uh, the kind of behind-the-scenes stuff um, that I've been able to put on the website. Um, And, you know, when I started this, I wrote kind of in the introductory article, I said part of the reason I wanted to do this was because it wasn't that long ago that I was a fan on the outside, too, and I wanted to see, you know, what happened behind the scenes. I wanted to understand X's and O's a lot better. I wanted to really kind of get in the mind of a front office. And there wasn't that much out there to be able to do that. And so my hope with cleaning the glass was I could provide that for fans. And, um, you know, one of the examples was, you know, I dig into the X's and O's. I highlight interesting sets that are out there. And so when Oklahoma City, I'd been watching them very carefully um, because I was interested to see how, from an X's and O's standpoint, they combined their three stars in a way that was more than just, you know, one takes a turn this time down, Westbrook runs a pick and roll, Paul George comes off the screen, et cetera. Um, and so they had installed this set um, that was called a Hawk set. And I kind of detailed it. it. It used, you know, their three stars in combination. And it was something that clearly they had put a lot of effort into, um, you know, to try to, to, jumpstart the offense and and get that kind of synergy that they were looking for and they started using it in crunch time and then all of a sudden on twitter i started seeing you know people popping up saying like oh i just was watching the fourth quarter of of this oklahoma city game and i saw they used the hawks at three times in a row and so just to kind of see people's response where they could go from you know reading something that i pointed out to then identifying it in a game and having it change their understanding of the game was pretty gratifying that's really cool. Ben, you know, I just made an assumption. I gave the intro earlier, but uh, I g- give everybody your background. Give them kind of your run to this point in time for those who don't know the name Ben Falk as well as they should at this point. 
so I started uh, working for the Portland Trailblazers um, in 2008. I was uh, still in college, and so it was part-time. Um, and I came on as a, a statistical analyst for them. Um, and from there, I worked for them two years until I graduated and then uh, got a full-time job as their uh, analytics manager. Um, and I was with the Blazers for four years. Uh, and it was an interesting time, if you remember. There was some turnover at the top. Um, so my first two years full-time, I worked for four different general managers. Um, but you know, luckily, towards the end, we had some stability with Neil O'Shea, um, we had Terry Stotts who came in, and and so it was great. From basically everyone I worked with was fantastic, and I learned a lot from them. Um, in 2014, uh, Sam Hinkie with the Sixers hired me uh, as the vice president of basketball strategy. Um, so I moved across the country and uh, worked for the Sixers uh, until 2016 uh, when I left. It's good stuff. Uh, the writing you're doing, I, I couldn't believe it. I was on the site, and you've actually you're even going to draft. Doing some draft work as well, so you're adding that in. Are you? Where, where does this? Where does this stop? Friday, <laughs> Friday film room, hawk sets, all the incredible numbers. Now draft. How far do you plan to go with the site? <laughs> well, so you know, for me, I kind of said that the the idea of the site was just addressing any basketball decisions and wherever that takes you. That's a very broad mandate. Um, but that's kind of how I viewed the perspective uh, of someone in the front office or on a coaching staff is really, for the most part, almost everything that you do is you making a basketball decision. Um, and so ha whatever that touches on, uh, that's where I go and I follow my own interests. I follow the way that, um, you know, front offices are operating. So part of why I'm doing draft work now is because this is about the time for the midseason review. Um, and I wrote about this on the site that this is the time where you know, almost every NBA front office is kind of taking stock of where they're at with the draft. Um, if they have remote scouts, they come in from out of town and they have meetings and say, okay, who are the players that we like? What does our board look like? And really, who are we, do, who do we need to study more? Um, you know, what do we need to dig into? What are the questions we still have to answer over the remaining five, six months? Um, and then how do we value some of these picks as we head into the trade deadline? And so, um, again, a lot of the site is from this front office perspective. And since that's what front offices are concentrating on, um, and this was the time of year where I, I really want to dig in. When I worked with teams, I would start to dig into the draft. And so um, that's what I'm doing. I'm digging into the draft and I'm kind of going through the top prospects and seeing, you know, four subscribers breaking down here, their strengths and weaknesses. Here's what I see on film. Here's what the numbers tell us. And really here are the questions, the kind of that same perspective, like I said, of a midseason review. It's not about answers at this point. It's about here are the questions and here are the things we really need to dig into and watch for as the seasons progress and as we head towards the draft. Okay, as I mentioned earlier, it's cleaningtheglass.com. It's $75 for a whole year of the content. It's great. Uh, if you're listening to this and you're a listener to the Lockdown Podcast Network, it's up your alley. Like, this is this is your stuff. Um, so I uh, hope, you, hope you follow through, and as you listen to Ben throughout this interview, I think you'll want to more and more. Uh, let, me, let me start with just uh, an analytics branding question. I always think it's interesting when I hear coaches in one sentence tell me how they don't like uh, it's there. It's over. It's kind of taboo to say you don't like analytics anymore. But you can tell there's a level of disgust when they discuss analytics. And then in the next comment, they'll say something that's basically an analytical statement. They just but they say it in basketball parlance. 
I feel like analytics is the worst. Basketball analytics is the worst <laughs> branded thing I've ever seen. We we all got obnoxious. I was included. Started calling it smart, as though if you weren't, you were dumb, which pissed people off. Like, how much of this do you think is just? Do you understand what I'm saying? Like, badly branded, and therefore at times met with resistance. Yeah, I think it's a fantastic point. I, I think that one of the things that I realized once I started working for a team and seeing how people operated. Um, behind the scenes is that everyone uses numbers all the time. Everyone uses evidence. And that's all this is, is it's just trying to use evidence in the best way possible to help you make the best decisions possible. And so, you know, if a coach says that, oh, I don't like stats, I mean, they, they use stats all the time. Before, they were looking at points per game and field goal percentage defense. And now some people come along and say, hey, there's some flaws in using that that can skew the numbers in a certain way and lead you to a bad decision. And so it might be better to look at effective field goal defense or it might be better to look at points per possession allowed. Um, and so I think in my experience was that a lot of the work that I did was not even coming up with the numbers in the first place, but was translating between the numbers to – uh, the coaches to the front office staff exactly the way that you say these are things that every you know uh, all of them intuitively know they see they just if it feels like it's coming it's a foreign language it's something that they don't understand then they're guarded and they're much more resistant whereas if you can translate it into something that they talk about and think about all the time then they love it and pretty soon uh, you know if you do it right um, everyone they, they want more and more of it and you almost have too much work on your hands because they see the value in it and they see the value in how it can help them make better decisions and be better at their jobs. Um, and so I think it, it really comes from, I think branding is a great point. I think it also just comes from an idea of, you know, does somebody process it as a threat or something that's going to add value to themselves? And if you come at people with, um, you know, an attitude that suggests that you know more than them um, or have too much confidence in what you're saying, if you use fancy acronyms or lots of numbers or charts that are, impossible to to parse or, or really understand then it becomes much more threatening whereas if you can take it and make it easy to digest and easy to understand and translate into a language of experts right these are these are experts in their area and you just have to translate it into that area then they can really um, incorporate it and use it in a way that uh, sometimes goes way beyond what you'd even expect all right, so this is interesting because Ben and I don't know each other. Almost every single time I have a podcast guest on, I'm pretty good friends with him. And, and well, Ben and I have never met, which is probably my failure. And so one of the things that I did with Ben is I sent him kind of a list of ideas. What Ben doesn't know is if I send you something at 1.45 in the morning this morning, um, it doesn't mean that that's actually what's on my mind by 12 <laughs> hours later. Um, so we'll try to do the best I can to stay on it. But, I've you know, with my brain, there's a million other things. I, I've... I am a, I have a hot personal topic. I think that – so the league average on offensive rebounding rate used to be 27% of all misses were rebounded offensively, and the high seems to be – the highest a team could ever go is kind of 30, 31%. And so the variance was so small that it Doc Rivers and Greg Popovich and the rise of transition, everybody started getting back defensively. And, like, Doc Rivers just openly said, like, we don't offensive rebound. And now all of a sudden, the average offensive rebounding rate is 21%, I think, in the league, at least last time I checked. So we've had this, over five years, this incredible drop. My instinct is telling me that the Ennis Cantors of the world, last night for the Utah Jazz, Epe Udos of the world, who are suddenly getting four offensive rebounds and eight extra points, 
that this that this pendulum, because of the gap to what you can do and what the league average is, that offensive rebounding is an undervalued money ball aspect. I got it in exchange for transition defense. What's your thoughts on this, Ben? So I think that you're you're right that there's definitely this trade off between transition and offensive rebounding, and that's been a um, something. You know, it's been a direction the league has gone um, because when you look at uh, a lot of the history of teams, you find that for the most part, transition uh, defense has mattered a lot more for the elite teams um, than offensive rebounding has helped. Uh, the other factor in the trend that you're talking about is uh, the rise of spread bigs. Um, and so you take someone, I mean, just like DeMarcus Cousins as an example, right? DeMarcus Cousins is playing on the perimeter so much these days, his offensive rebounding is necessarily going to be lower. Um, somebody like Christoph Porzingis, um, you know, is not a great offensive rebounder. These guys who are hanging out on the perimeter, and it's not because they don't have the size or the instinct or anything like that. It's because of their positioning on the court. Um, and so... That also has changed. I think that the um, you know the benefits outweigh the costs there, where you're getting much more space on the court and you're allowing guards to get to the rim. You're opening things up a lot more. Um, but obviously, that has has hurt offensive rebounding as well. That said, I think that um, when you look at some of the teams that have managed to both offensive rebound well and play transition defense, there are teams that do that. And um, if you look back over the years, there are teams that have been not only decent offensive rebounding teams, but very good offensive rebounding teams and still been good in transition defense. And a lot of times uh, the way that those teams do that is by playing bigger and having their big men offensive rebound and their perimeter players, their guards and wings, get back in transition. Uh, And so that means that when you have those players, like you're talking about, big men who are elite on the offensive glass, you can get more offensive rebounds and boost your offense in that way and get high percentage looks Uh, without giving up as much in transition defense. You have some neat stuff about half-court offenses and fast breaks. And I was using your site. I was using Impredictable the other day. Um, I was trying to find any correlation between high offensive rebounding rate and bad transition defense, and I couldn't find it anymore. That used to be kind of a factual entity, right? That if you offensive rebound, you're a bad transition team. I'm not finding that right now are you so it's it's complicated because um the overall stats we need to have kind of a little bit better data resolution on this um which is that the overall stats i think are a little bit uh cloudy in terms of um you know how much the offensive rebounding impacts uh the defensive stats because you're looking at it a little bit too zoomed out in the past when i've dug into this with uh coordinate data where you can see where players are positioned on the court um, there's a very strong correlation between whether, like, essentially when a shot is rebounded, um, how many players you have too close to the basket and whether that turns into transition. Um, so a, a fun game to play if you have, you know, DVR or, or you're watching, you know, recording of a game is when a shot is rebounded, if you just hit pause and you see, say, like three or more players on offense who are below the free throw line extended, um, and just guess whether it's going to be transition. It almost always is, right? It, it's when the defense or when the offense, um, their floor balance is compromised in some way like that. Uh, uh, the opposing teams are very good at taking advantage of it and pushing in the other direction. Um, so I think that that correlation is strong. Whether that's that shows up in the overall numbers can be a factor, like we talked about, of personnel and other coaching decisions, which I think um, can kind of cloud it a little bit more, and so it doesn't show up as easily in, in terms of teams' overall numbers. 
It's an interesting, it's an interesting discussion. Your overall summation and your analysis, Ben, is uh, negating offensive rebounding for transition defense is still the right decision. So I think it depends when you when you dig in and you talk about it kind of in a little bit more detail. I wouldn't be, you know, if I were coaching, I wouldn't be saying, let's send our perimeter players, let's send a small forward who's, um, you know, on the wing right now, let's send him to the glass frequently. Um, because I think having that extra man back in transition um, from the studies that I've done, especially against teams that are really adept in transition, um, that is, is very helpful and that, that outweighs it one way or the other. That said, to the point that you were making before, if you can find a big man um, who is very good on the offensive glass, that means you're not sacrificing as much in transition or potentially anything at all um, by having, like you said, Ennis Cantor around the basket consistently chasing offensive rebounds. Um, that, I think, pushes you the other direction. You, you wouldn't tell Ennis Cantor if he's near the rim to sprint back in transition defense. That's a bad trade-off. The other side of this conversation probably has to do with the value of offensive rebounding for bad offensive teams, right? So if we're if you're a below-average offensive team and you can go steal six points on a given night, those six points are really important. Right, and, and it's a way that you can get an efficient look that you might not otherwise be able to create. So offensive rebounding becomes more valuable the more shots you miss, of course, right? Um, and then also, if you're struggling to be able to put pressure on the rim and get to the basket, if you have someone who can get in there and you know you have a tough mid-range shot and it clangs off the rim and then... Someone like Cantor goes and, and picks it up, and now you all of a sudden you have the defense off balance, whether he's going to go up with it, draw a foul, get a layup, kick out for a three. Um, you're able to create efficient looks in a way that is uh, difficult to otherwise. And if I remember correctly, last year, I think the number was 41% on kick out uh, threes off offensive rebounds, which is pretty high. <laughs> One point two yeah. points per possession will work for you. All right, uh, I'm really using Ben here to just because of my insecurities and the fact that Kevin, <laughs> and the fact that Kevin Pelton always tells me I'm stupid. Um, that's actually not true, but there's no such thing as a locked in NBA podcast with a cheap shot at Kevin Pelton. Um, so Kevin does all of his stuff, and most people do it off replacement level. I have run most of my offensive numbers off average, and I find what I think is one of the missed things in this league is how incredibly detrimental a below average offensive player is. Um, I'll just leave that there for you to react. Are you with me on this at all? That the, the below average offensive player is a far larger negative than people realize. So I'd have to understand a little bit, uh, better what you're saying. I think from my perspective, the way I've always seen it is I think offense is generally overrated by the league. Okay. Um, and so players who are uh, – so take like Luke Bamute as an example. Um, Luke Bamute has been, uh, for his entire career, a very good defensive player um, and has uh, struggled at the offensive end. Um, you know, He doesn't necessarily have a, have a clear position. Um, and he hasn't until recently, you know, even had a very effective three-point shot. Um, and I think someone who has flipped the other way, right, who had this, who was as much above average on offense as he was on defense, and as much below average on defense as he was on offense, right? So just kind of the reverse of Luke Bamute ends up getting a lot of accolades and and paid pretty well. So maybe somebody like that is Jamal Crawford who throughout his career has been a, a pretty big negative on the defensive end um, and is clearly a talented offensive player. 
um, you know, Luke Bamute kind of bounces around from teams and plays on minimum or, or below mid-level contracts. Um, and Jamal Crawford, you know, wins six man of the year and, and gets paid a reasonable amount. Um, so can that's I, always I, been my perspective. Can yeah. I interrupt here for a second? Cause this tells you how crappy my question was. Because I look at Luke Bamute as a average, my numbers have him as a, this year as an average offensive player. And for years, I've had Jamal Crawford as a below-average offensive player. And Jamal Crawford might be one of my examples of what I'm talking about. <laughs> okay, um, fair enough. And so I guess what I'm saying is an average – I just look at everything based on scoring opportunities, so shots or free, trips to the free-throw line and what an average player in the league does. So the average – I believe the average this year is 1.1 points per scoring opportunity. So either you take a shot or you go to the free-throw line. And then I look at what every player does – in contrast to that. So Andrew Wiggins is a great example. In the This is how I judge offensive players. In the 18 scoring opportunities that Andrew Wiggins gets on a given night, he scores 1.8 points less than an average player in the league would with those 18 possessions. It's a lot. Like there's only, so you, there's only 12 offensive players that are better, that are plus more than 1.8 right now. So you're talking more from an efficiency standpoint. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess okay. I should be saying inefficient offensive player. So I actually, you know, like a guy like Bamute, to your point, Ben, uses very few possessions. I, I haven't looked at what he was last year with the Clippers. He didn't shoot as well um, as I think he was this year. But he comes out because he shoots the three and because he's not using a lot of possessions as a fairly non-impactful offensive player. In fact, last year he was positive again. He's the exact same this year as last year. Um, and so he, to me, is an, he's a point three player, I call it pack, um, he's only using five scoring opportunities a night, so he's fine. He's not negatively impacting you. Whereas Jamal Crawford at minus point six last year or minus one point eight this year, or Andrew or Andrew Wiggins at minus one point eight is incredibly detrimental. Right. So I think that gets more to efficiency and efficiency is a little bit complicated to evaluate because it also has to do with the opportunities you're getting. So uh, you know, if we we take the let's say Wiggins or Crawford and we compare it to Luke Bamute, um, you could argue that if you told Andrew Wiggins that he was going to shoot five times a game, right, <laughs> or whatever it is, basically pick his be as efficient as possible and pick his spots, um, that he would probably be much more efficient. His his shots would be wide open threes and dunks in transition. Um, and that's all he would do. The question, um, you know, from a team perspective is, is that the best use of Andrew Wiggins' talents? Um, I think that if you start comparing apples to apples, then, uh, I think your point, um, holds, um, and I think is, is, makes a lot of sense, which is if you look at players who are all, like shot creators, who have, who are shouldering an offensive burden for their team, um, then perhaps, uh, you know, efficiency isn't made. It, people don't talk enough about how much efficiency matters, which is, I think, what you're saying. Um, somebody like Wiggins, who is struggling to create efficient scoring opportunities, um, might people might have a higher opinion of him than they should. And I, a lot of that gets down to one of the things that I um, I think is is fascinating is why we have some issues, um, you know, processing, you know, that um, the inefficient players aren't as good as we think uh as we think they are on offense and i think it comes down to uh the way i would put it is there's players who can create good shots and there's players who are good at making tough shots and so a player like 
Carmelo Anthony, um, a player like, you know, Rudy Gay used to be this way. Andrew Wiggins, I think, is this way as well. Is they're good at, maybe DeMar DeRozan is another good example. They've been good at making difficult shots. They have good footwork. They have a nice release in mid-range. When the game is on the line and you know the shot's going to be difficult, they're better than you think. Um, but for a lot of the game, they're creating difficult shots and they're not getting wide open layups for themselves or their teammates. They're not creating wide open threes. They're not hitting wide open threes. And I think maybe that's uh, the difference that you're pointing to is this idea that we think that players who make tough shots are good offensive players and they are in a very specific aspect of the game. Um, but their overall impact on the team's offense is a lot worse than we would expect. And specifically to Wiggins this year, what jumps out to me is there is some value of having a high usage player if you don't have any others, right? Like there's, you know, I go back to like Al Jefferson at one point in his career was like a high usage player on not particularly efficient, but there was nobody else on his team using possessions. Andrew Wiggins has a million other t- players that are going to use possessions. Like they would all love to, sh- to share his 18 possessions on that team where they have so many possession users. And I, I don't know. I find, I, don't know, I find that I find the Andrew Wiggins case in Minnesota very very interesting because if I run my numbers without Andrew Wiggins and just them taking a trade that everyone around the league would kill them for, where they just added three what I would call average offensive players and distributed out those possessions, I have them way better, like way better. So Andrew Wiggins is a fascinating example that he used. I think for most players. Um, that holds, which is, you know, there's a player that is uh, using a lot of the offense, isn't using it efficiently. Uh, you know, Wiggins isn't really a great passer either. Um, and so you put that together and you say he's probably not helping his team as much offensively as people think. What's actually fascinating about Wiggins, though, is his team, Minnesota, has been much better on offense when he's on the court compared to off. And basically every year he's been in the league, um, which I, you know, to me, he he uh, confuses me to some degree, right? Like, how do you square the fact that um, most of the numbers we would look at suggest that he hasn't been a great offensive player, and yet the team consistently does better? And that's the case even when you, um, you know, you look at something like adjusted plus minus, which adjusts for the teammates he plays for and his replacements and the players he's playing against. Um, so that is where he becomes a little bit of a conundrum, and maybe that's an idea for a future article to dig into to try and study you know, what is he doing that uh, isn't necessarily showing up in his individual numbers, uh, but seems to be showing up in the team numbers? How much do you think teammates impact individual player efficiency? So this is one of the things that I love about basketball. is It's, it's not like baseball, which is a series of one-on-one matchups, but everything is interconnected. Uh, so just to the discussion we were just having, uh, you know, you, you said, which is a great point, on a team that doesn't have any other shot creators – someone who's an inefficient shot creator is valuable um, because, I mean, you can think of it, you know, if you're playing pickup and <laughs> you're on a team with a, uh, a bunch of guys who, like, no one can get their own shot, um, then at, at that point, taking a worse shot becomes a, a better idea for you. And uh, sometimes, you know, you're playing with somebody who they can hit a spot of three and that's all they can do. And you don't want them dribbling around and trying to take, you know, a tough step back. Um, and I, that holds in the NBA as well. So y- you have a situation in which someone can shoulder an offensive load and they might be taking uh, tougher shots for themselves. Um, but that means that their teammates who are more role players, who play better off the pass, who play better in very specific situations, 
don't have to try to create offense and don't have to do things that are much more difficult for them. Um, and that means that essentially that they become much more efficient and really from a team perspective, your team might be more efficient even if a player doesn't look um, from an individual perspective, like they're being efficient. Pretty incredible stuff from Ben Falk there. T- next episode, we'll drop part two for you. Uh, I'll drop it Friday morning. I got to figure out some, straighten up some things on it, but it talks about the individual players when they switch teams, front office mistakes, variance of performance by star players, and then we dig into a defensive star that I don't think gets enough respect and what teams, what are good playoff numbers. Thanks to SeatGeek. Remember, the promo code is locked. You get $20 back on your first purchase, courtesy of SeatGeek. Ben Falk's site is cleaningtheglass.com. More coming in part two, which should be dropped early Friday morning for you. Thanks so much for tuning in.